Hi, I'm Jake Miller, host of the Educational Duct Tape Podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of each individual host. Be sure to check out all of our other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And get ready, because the learning begins in three, two, one. Hey, welcome back. Today I'm talking with Elaine Halligan. She's the author of My Child's Different, The Lessons Learned from One Family Struggled to Unlock Their Son's Potential. This is a powerful book with a powerful message. And anybody who has children or anybody who works with children is going to want to read this book. And you're going to want to listen and share this interview. Thanks for being here. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Elaine Halligan is a director at the Parent Practice and has been a parenting specialist since 2006, helping parents raise competent children through parenting classes, private coaching, and keynote speaking in schools and corporate settings, both in the UK and overseas. She is frequently quoted in the media and regularly appears on Sky News, BBC World News, and BBC Local Radio. Her mission is to help parents find the holy grail of parenting, keeping calm, and bringing out the best in their children. Elaine is the author of the book, My Child's Different, The Lessons Learned from One Family Struggle to Unlock Their Son's Potential, Crown House Publishing in 2018. My Child's Different is the true story of her family's journey with a child who is different, her son Sam. Elaine shares the transformation of an angry, struggling child into a capable, reflective, wonderful young man. What makes that transformation possible is his parents who learn the positive parenting approach that brings out the best in their son. Elaine, thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Yeah, it's great to be here. It just seems a bit surreal because I'm sitting in my office in Wimbledon, which is SW19 London, and I'm speaking to you across the pond. So it's just very exciting. Thank you. Thank you so much. And it's it's exciting to me too. This is cool because I'm in uh, you know I'm in Dublin, Georgia, and uh, we're uh, and uh, we're talking like you said. And we're connected. Yes, <laughs> we are. This is this is very cool. So uh, uh, Elaine, let's let's go ahead and I want to delve into the book, and then we're going to come back out of the book for a minute. Um, in in the introduction to my child's different, you say this: society expects children and adults to conform. We are quick to judge those who present differently. Could you talk a little bit about this? Uh, and especially in uh, regards to your family? Absolutely. Um, I think when we started to have our family, we just expected uh, to to have Sam and to have our children and just to be a normal family. And um, I, I quote in the book a wonderful poem about how parents get excited about going to uh, Rome, which is the most glamorous city in Italy. And by going to Rome, it's just the most wonderful place to be. And everyone's coming and going, boasting about the fine wine and food and Michelangelo. We didn't arrive in Rome and we arrived in Holland. And I think what was extraordinary was we, we didn't expect to have a child with difficulties. And I think if you've got a different child or just a quirky child or a neurodiverse child, whatever label or term you want to use, I think society does judge us if we're different. And um, in the early days, I felt very different uh, as a mum because my son wasn't behaving appropriately. And the interesting thing is if you have a child who doesn't behave well, often as parents, uh, you feel criticised. 
you feel as if the burden lies on you. So I, I did spend very uh, many of the early years just feeling really judged and thinking, what was I getting wrong? Because I had a child who behaved differently. And it started very young, Steve. We would go to birthday parties at the age of three and four. I would turn my back. And the next thing is Sam would be stripping off naked. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he would be running around the room, stark bollock naked, trying to get attention from the other kids. Now, the other kids thought this was hysterical, and they all started laughing. And the more they laughed, the more Sam would do it. And it soon became obvious that this little boy was hardwired to get attention. And instead of landing in Rome with our first child, we had very definitely landed in Holland, which was such a different place to be. It wasn't a dreadful place to be, but it wasn't what we expected. Gotcha. The, uh, so with uh, um, when this starts happening, uh, when you start realizing this, um, you know, one of the things that uh, you know, we're going to get into here a little bit that comes out in, in your book, My Child's Different, um, it, I mean, do, do you, obviously you have to, uh, to deal with how, I mean, how he's going to go to school and, uh, if it's going to continue and, and, uh, what's happening here. Um, and one of the people that, uh, you meet along the way, I believe is, uh, and in the book, throughout the book, there's commentary from Melissa Hood. Um, could, oh, you, yeah. could you tell us a little bit about her and the part that she plays in My Child's Different? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so My Child's Different is a very unique parenting book because it's a true story about our son, Sam, who's now a young adult. It has got the voice of Melissa Hood, who I met along the way, and she is a parenting specialist. And, and, and Melissa was transformational in our lives in, in, in delivering positive parenting skills to us. And, and of course, Stephen, the other voice in the book is my son, Sam, now as a young adult, reflecting back on all that happened to him. So it's a kind of really unique blend of a mother's voice, um, my parenting coach's voice, and, and Sam's voice. And Melissa Hood was instrumental in, in just helping us see that Sam wasn't being a problem with the way he was behaving, but he was having a problem. And of course, that took us years. It took us the best part of eight years to understand what Sam's needs were. Um, and he had a very, very tricky start to life, uh, Stephen, because by the age of seven, he had been expelled or excluded from three schools in so many years. Wow. So Melissa was transformational in teaching us a completely different way to parent, but we needed to understand what his educational and social needs were, first of all, before we even embarked on the positive parenting piece. That's awesome. The, you know, it's and, and powerful what you're just saying there, because kind of going back to that statement that you made about society expecting children and adults to conform. I'm guessing that's where the expulsions came from. <laughs> um, well, yeah, because I had a little boy who, who couldn't behave sensibly and it all started very early at nursery school. And I'd be met at the door by the nursery teacher who would say to me, Mrs. Halligan, we have not had a good day. And it was always the royal we. And she would say, um, Sam's struggling to follow instructions. He is not cooperative. Um, oh, he's such high energy. We just can't control him. 
Um, he's such a wiggle worm, he can't sit on the carpet time. And the kind of record list kind of went on and on and on. And he's aggressive and he pushes and he shoves other children. So, yes, from an early age, I kind of sense Sam was different because he didn't behave. And, and as he was put in educational environments where I realize now, Stephen, it's taken me a long time to kind of realize this because we got so many diagnostic labels but really what was happening to Sam was he was so anxious. He was anxious being placed in educational environments where he could not access the curriculum. And because he has a really high IQ, I think it's 142, which is above average. Wow. Um, yeah. this, this little boy was kind of pathologically thinking, how can I get out of these stressful situations because I'm really struggling to learn. So his behavior was was very confronting both at home and at school, and people struggled with him, including us, including his parents. I can only imagine. The, uh, you know, it, something that I, one of the things I want to make sure that I talk about before we uh, get into a couple of chapters I'm, I'm going to ask you about in just a minute is that um, I love the, the way you set up um, the chapters, and there's, you know, because not only do you hear the different voices, um, you have at the end of each chapter, you have something called Elaine's Reflections, where you ask questions. And an, an example would be at the end of chapter three, um, one of your questions is this. For some children, they learn that it is easier to get attention for negative behavior than for positive behavior. Have you fallen into the trap of focusing too heavily on what they are getting wrong? Could you talk about the inclusion of Elaine's Reflections? And then actually, I wouldn't mind us talking a little bit about that question. Great, great question. Um, yeah, I just really wanted to get the reader engaged in the book and, and to get them really thinking outside their comfort zone. So at the end of each chapter, those reflections are kind of big questions to sit down with your partner or whoever is helping you bring up the children and, and just start to reflect on how our own behavior impacts on our children's. And, and so often I think we blame our children for causing us to shout. And by the way, I was a shoutaholic. I absolutely was a shoutaholic. And I don't think I'm a negative person, but Sam really pressed my buttons. So it's a really useful tool at the end of each book just to help parents kind of think differently, to reflect and have conversations together. It, it's really powerful, I got to tell you, because at each chapter, it makes you it, it, it stop and read and, and, and think yeah, through it. And just so. reflect and think. And in terms of the second question, I, I think that's the most powerful question of all. But because we have to retrain ourselves as teachers, as well as parents, anyone who cares for children, we have to retrain ourselves away from what I call the negativity bias. Now, now the negativity bias is all of us in society being, and I have to say inadvertently, we don't do it purposefully on the whole. Inadvertently, we are critical to our children. And, and, and the basic premise is that what we pay attention to what we notice, we get more of. But, but in, in, in everyday life, whether it's in the classroom or home, what we tend to do is pay attention to the stuff we don't like. Um, can I give you an example? Most definitely. Um, let's say little Johnny comes in from school. He rushes in in a state of excitement to get his snack and his drink. <laughs> and he hangs his coat up beautifully. And he, as he runs through to the kitchen, he dumps his book bag and his shoes right in the middle of the floor. What do we notice? That it's all in the middle of the floor. <laughs> we just notice what's on the floor. I want to say, Johnny, how many times do I have to tell you your book bag doesn't stay in the middle of the floor and why aren't your shoes in the shoe box? It's not difficult. 
and we kind of focus on the stuff that they're not getting right. And, and what's interesting, there is a scientific reason that we do this, and it's called the reticular activating system. I don't know whether you've come across this, the RAS, and, and it's part of our brain that searches for whatever it is that we're currently focused on. So if we're focused on a clean house, yeah, a tidy house, we will immediately notice those shoes in the middle of the floor. And we filter out very neatly what we think is unimportant. So, so the fact that the coat is hanging up is completely unimportant to us because we want the shoes to be in the shoe box. Um, another example that I often use with clients is that when we buy a new car, I don't know whether you've bought a new car recently, but I don't know. If you buy a Golf, a Volkswagen Golf or something, you decide to buy a new car, you suddenly go into the streets of Dublin. Oh, and guess what? You, you see Volkswagen Golfs everywhere now. <laughs> you pull up at the traffic lights, you turn to the left or right or wherever it is, and, and you see a Volkswagen Golf. You just start <laughs> noticing them. Now, now it's not that, the, that there's just been lots of purchases of Volkswagen Golfs. It's just that your reticular activating system is now searching for what you're focused on. So, so it is innate in human nature to focus on what we think is important. We need to change that. We need to change uh, that in the classroom and at home. So back to the little Johnny example, what we would say to parents is it's really important. You notice what your kid is getting right. Because what you pay attention to, you will get more of. And so what it sounds like is, hey, Johnny, hey, good for you. You've done one of the three things you need to do when you come in from school. Good for you. You're following the new rule about where your coat goes. I wonder which thing you're going to do next. And smile. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, and, and amazingly, when you transfer that negative bias to just being more positive, and by changing the power of your language, by noticing children's effort, their attitude, any progress they make, any qualities or characteristics, what we'll find is that we will have more motivated children and more cooperative children. And that's all about using something called descriptive praise. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? It sure does. And that's, and I, you know, I, I know exactly where, I, although I never heard the, the, the terms associated with RAS, you know, okay. <laughs> I know the thought behind it because that's just as you it's described quite useful it. useful to know the science because, you know, it, it doesn't mean that we are negative per se. It, it's just really difficult for us to retrain our brain to look for the good stuff that our kids are doing. Yeah, it's hard to because especially when, uh, especially when, you know, in, in whatever the situation is, if it's something that you've had to talk about over and over again. <laughs> and Oh, my God, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> if you're always going on about those blinking shoes. Um, <laughs> yes. I have a wonderful top tip for your listeners about how to get into action with descriptive praise. Okay. Um, I really encourage all of them with kind of elementary school children to set up a notebook. And we call this notebook the golden book or the good book or the praise book and write in it five times a day. Um, just little things like, thank you, Sam, for taking your cup to the dishwasher. Huh? I'm going to call you my helping hand. Or today you sat at the homework table straight away without any hesitation, no nagging from me. You're a little boy who's getting into really good habits and behaviors. So lots and lots of praise. Write it in the golden book. And then when it comes to bedtime, if you're still reading bedtime stories to your children, finish off just before lights go out, you read the golden book to them. And they put their head on the pillow feeling very warm, feeling very fuzzy, 
knowing that they're valued, and guess what happens? Self-esteem increases. So it doesn't matter what rubbish is going on outside the home, in the classroom, in the playground, as long as your child leaves the house every morning feeling that they're valued and feeling that they know where their strengths lie and what they're able to do and what they're good at, you will find self-worth increase. And we say that self-esteem and self-worth is just at the heart of bringing up competent, confident children. That's awesome. That is so awesome that, you know, it's, uh, and I could, you know, I can see where um, this is applicable in uh, from the home to the classroom, whoever's working with, uh, with children. So um, I, I, I think this also works in the classroom with teachers. And if you can imagine teachers just taking one page of A4 for each child in the classroom, and trying hard to make one or two descriptive praises during the week for that child. And then every child can take that piece of paper home to their parents on a Friday night. It would make a world of difference. So not for one minute am I saying each child needs a golden book in the classroom. I think that would be overwhelming for teachers. But just setting up a file with just a page for each child and just scribbling down some descriptive praises. And then what you'll find is the magic starts to happen because the children will be pointing out the good behavior in their colleagues. And you can make this into a wonderful game. And before you know it, everyone is praising each other. The atmosphere changes, self-esteem increases, mindset changes. You get more growth mindset children. And the whole thing is really beneficial. And, and, and Stephen, it even works with teens. With the teens, I don't recommend you reading the golden book to them at bedtime. <laughs> I think they'll tell you to get lost. <laughs> but you can still set up a little notebook to help you as a parent get into better habits to notice what your kid is doing well. And you just leave this notebook somewhere lying around on the kitchen sideboard and just tell them what you're doing and just saying, you know, I realize I've been a bit negative recently, so I'm just trying to get into better habits and behaviors. And I guarantee, I guarantee the teen will look at the book at some point. In secret, they'll have a little look at it. They may not tell you, oh, mom, dad, thank you for <laughs> writing the book, but it will all sink in because teenagers need descriptive praise just like they need nutrition. And they need it just as much as toddlers and elementary school children do. I think that's so powerful. That is, and you're so right on the money. I mean, that's just something that, and it's funny what you just said, because yeah, they may not tell you that they've looked at it, but they're going yeah. to. <laughs> and and you can do it on your partners too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, all, if you know Gottman's work, John Gottman in Seattle, the couple's uh, counselor, he says that in order for a marriage to survive, we need five positives to every one negative five positives and if we think about interactions between partners and husbands and wives it's usually the other way around usually we're <laughs> more nagging and negative so, so if marriages in order to survive need five to one i guarantee you our children whose self-esteem is growing and whose souls we're nurturing they definitely need 10 to 1 they need 10 positives to every one negative and that is a real change in kind of mindset and how we talk to our children. That is, that is so awesome. And, and I just can envision how powerful and how true that, how um, impactful that uh, that would be. Um, you know, one, of the, one of the things I want to do is I want to go into an, another one of your chapters here. Um, at, at the beginning of chapter four, and the chapter four is titled, There Has to Be Another Way. And in 
parentheses, out of school, you say, at every step of the way in helping your different or difficult uh, children, you will meet significant people who have an important impact on your decisions and help you gain clarity on what to do next. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I, I believe in serendipity. I believe in looking for opportunities. Um, I'm an extrovert, Steve, and so I, I talk to anyone. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that, that there are ambassadors out there. There's lots of people with incredible resources and a will to help others. And so what I did when we were struggling with Sam and trying to get him back into school is I started speaking to lots of people because at this point, and I don't think I've mentioned this in the interview yet, is Sam had become the alphabet kid. Um, he was labeled with so many diagnostics, diagnoses, that we just didn't know which way to turn. And so I ended up speaking with a huge amount of people in the community who had special needs children to try and get a grip on what the heck we were to do as a parent with a child who had so many labels. Um, and is it helpful for me just to go through some of those labels? Yes, please. Um, he was diagnosed originally with ASD, Autistic Spectrum Disorder. Um, then we were told he had ADD, um, Attention Deficit Disorder. Oh, they threw in a bit of SID, SID, mm. um, sensory integration dysfunction. We were then told he had ODD, oppositional defiance disorder. And the day he was diagnosed with PDA, and, and that's not public displays of affection. Right. <laughs> although he was an affectionate child. Um, that was pathological demand avoidance. Mm. And that was the day I just came home and cried. And, and because we had Sam, who was this alphabet kid, kind of in the syndrome mix, I just went out into the community and spoke to as many people as I could. And I think many meetings I had were very serendipitous, but I think you create those opportunities. So my message to any parent listening who's got a child who's different is be curious. Be curious. Keep talking, keep researching, keep exploring. And I think somewhere along the line, you will meet an ambassador. And, and I met several ambassadors who really um, helped me understand what I call the um, special educational needs jungle, because it is a jungle out there trying to get the right educational provision for your child. And it is not right. And I'm not sure what's happening in the U.S., but in the UK, we do not have adequate provision for the children with specific learning difficulties who, who, who for all intents and purposes, are highly intelligent. And, and Sam, by the way, is severely dyslexic. All those labels he got, that they were not accurate. They were a symptom of huge anxiety due to the severe dyslexia. Oh. And, of course, finding an educational environment for a child who's bright but can't cope in kind of mainstream school in the UK, we are at crisis point because you either have a severe or moderately disabled learning disabled child, but those children with mild or specific learning needs definitely sleep beneath, beneath the net. And they are the ones who need really um, good peripatetic support in the classroom. And, and the sad thing is our teachers just aren't trained enough um, to cope with children like Sam. So, yeah, be curious, keep talking, meet other people. You will find your ambassador out there who will help you. That's that's awesome and very powerful. And it's just, oh, my gosh, I can only imagine uh, 
the feelings that you must have had, is, especially when the, the you know you get the every one of those different diagnoses with different uh, possibilities of what it means. So, yeah, you know, I have I have had my low parenting moments a lot. And I don't know whether you remember in the book, Stephen, the incident on the train when Sam was hitting a passenger, kicking a passenger. Yes. Um, you know, I, I have been absolutely at rock bottom, not knowing what to do. And and the magic came when we did two things. We learned positive parenting. We learned how to connect and communicate with Sam completely differently. And the second thing is we were very fortunate to get Sam into a special needs school, which was a dyslexic school where the kids are intelligent, but they just struggle with their literacy and maybe a bit of language, pragmatic, semantic language. And that was when the magic started to happen. Get the right educational environment, get the right support at home with parents being in charge. So being positive, but let's not let's not get this um let's not get this wrong. You also need to be firm as well. Yeah, you need boundaries, you need rules. And then add in a good dose of consistency and you can have the magic recipe. Positive, firm, and consistent. That's that's awesome. The because uh, you know, and it, it's funny, you started touching on something that I wanted to ask you, which is in the next chapter, chapter five, which is it, it's called This Changes Everything and it's back to school. There's a section titled Hope Returns, and it starts like this. You say one of the hardest things for a parent with a child. Um, who is different is finding the right educational environment, a school that truly nurtures the child and understands their unique temperament and qualities. And uh, that's, I, I can only imagine that the, the relief that kind of comes with uh, discovering that you may have made a good choice. <laughs> You've done your homework, haven't you? <laughs> Try. <laughs> you, you really read this book. I'm impressed. Thanks. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, finding the right school and a lot of parents listening to this may be banging their heads against the wall, you know, um, dealing with a school where maybe the teachers aren't trained. Maybe they don't understand. But I urge everyone listening to this, even if they're an educator or a parent, to always think that all behavior has a cause. All behavior has a cause. And the cause of most behavior is generated by emotions and feelings. And if we've got a child who's different who finds things difficult, who finds education difficult, then the feelings will be overwhelming of just frustration. Um, it could be anger. It could be upset. And, and we all need to look below the water level. Think of that iceberg model. Don't keep looking at the tip of the iceberg because when we look at the tip of the iceberg and punish behavior, it never works. It leads to rebelliousness and resentment. We need to do a deep dive. We need to dive deep beneath the water to see what's beneath the tip of the iceberg. And there's always a mound of ice underneath the water. And that mound of ice is usually emotions and feelings. And we need to connect with our children and let them know how they can get rid of that emotional backpack of feelings. And that's when the magic starts to happen. It's about us actually changing the way we speak, um, changing the way we listen to our children and, uh, and just being hugely empathetic and also firm. And it's a magic combination. That's awesome. The uh, you know, um, and Stephen, I'm sorry, I've got the printer going in the background here. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's a busy office. <laughs> All is good. I understand. The uh, um, you know, one of the things that I want to do is that I, I kind of want to shift gears because, and and actually, what I'm getting ready to ask, I didn't really mean to make a pun here, <laughs> but Sam gets older and things get better, and and uh, eventually, when Sam's a lot older, 
Can you talk a little bit about the Mongol rally? <laughs> Have you Googled it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> After you mentioned that in the book, I'm like, what in the world? And so, yes. <laughs> the world um and i think you have to be under 60 i don't know how old you are Stephen, but if you're under 60 i think you can do the mongol rally um sam is is a young man who lives with his cup half full he's curious he's energetic and he's discovered that he's an adventurer um he's a problem solver he's a critical thinker and cars has always been his passion um from a very young age so he decided at the age of uh, i think he was 18 to register for a rally where you drive a 1.2 litre car from London across all of Europe, through the Stan countries, across the Caspian Sea, and you end up in Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. It's mad. <laughs> it's 18,000 kilometres. Wow. And the three boys who did it should never, ever, ever have been able to accomplish it in a 1.2 litre Skoda and not one. You need a four-wheel drive to cross some of these countries. But imagine. they did it. But they did it. And can you imagine as a young adult, when you complete an adventure like that, the kind of skills that you're learning, the problem-solving skills, the resilience, the grit, how to cope when things don't go right, how to be flexible and adaptable. And I kind of bang on in the book about how important it is as parents that we teach our children the soft skills in life what I call the home curriculum, and not be so focused on kind of academic achievement. It doesn't matter how many grades you get, whether you get into Harvard or Stanford or the Ivy League universities, it amounts to nothing if you're unable to cope in everyday life. So Sam has become an adventurer, and I have to confess, Stephen, when he did the Mongol rally, um, my anxiety levels went through the roof. <laughs> I can only imagine. I, when I read that part, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can just imagine what might what be going through my my brain and my heart at the same time when you're like, what? what? <laughs> and then did you see what the next challenge was that yes, happened? Yes, the rickshaw. Are you, are you talking about that part, the, the rickshaw? I'm talking about the rickshaw run <laughs> yes. where, where, where we, well, the, the difference here was that Sam was so motivated by adventuring. He kind of inspires other people. Nice. And what was interesting was he inspired his sister to join him on the next challenge, uh, which was from North to South India, driving in a um, an auto rickshaw. I don't know whether people know what that is. It's like a glorified lawnmower. Oh, my yeah? gosh. <laughs> and it goes, you know, 30, 40 kilometers per hour. And, and it was four and a half thousand kilometer journey. The only difference is this time I joined him. Nice. <laughs> And I, um, I don't think I, I don't think my hip flexors have ever recovered from, from <laughs> three years ago. But I just refound myself, and I realised that in my younger days, I'd also been an adventurist. Um, I'd travelled almost across every state in the USA, and I have a very fond memory of my travels to Atlanta and to um, North Carolina, and uh, right mm -hmm. across to the West Coast. And I guess it's in the genes, Stephen. So Sam <laughs> suddenly started to. Yeah, to, to, to kind of um, discover his passion, which was travel and also cars, classic cars. And um, yeah, the apple doesn't fall far away from the tree. I, I guess I was exactly like that when, when I was his age as well. That's awesome. That's so awesome. I, when I got to that chapter and I'm <laughs> reading these things, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a big fan of some movies from the 70s in the U.S. where they got into all these uh, kind of car adventure sorts of things. and. Uh, oh. 
and and one of yeah. them is called Gumball Rally, which the, they oh, go yes. from one side of the country to the other in these cars, and there's no rules. And you know, that's Sam. That's Sam all over. It's High awesome. Impulsivity, um, Gumball Rally. It's got his name written all over it. And of course, he's a young man now who still has literacy problems. Let's not let's not underplay that. Right. It's really challenging for him to read or write, but boy, does he know his strengths. And when we can get our children working to their strengths, knowing what they're good at and maximizing that potential, that's when we have children who become young adults who can be successful and resilient and not fear failure. And I think that's a big message for kind of 21st century parents. We need to ensure our children have that mindset, no matter where their weaknesses lie. That's so powerful, and it is so just important for for uh, parents and teachers alike to hear because that is just uh, you know it sends that um, strong message that uh, you know we need to hear. And you know, one of the things that I'd like to do is kind of shift at this point. If we could talk for a minute, because you're a director for the parent practice. Could you share its purpose and how the organization helps parents? Sure. That's very kind of you to ask about that. Um, Yeah, we run the parent practice in London. It's been going for about 15 years. And it's an organization that um, delivers positive parenting, enabling parents and teachers and any carers to just bring out the best in children. Um, We help parents be calm, which I always say is finding the holy grail of parenting. And we help them be positive and we help them to connect and communicate with their children because I love children. I love seeing young adults blossom. And I know that teachers and adults have a huge impact on children's self-esteem. And we believe that positive parenting actually needs to be taught. It's not instinctive. Parenting is not instinctive. People think it is, but it's a deeply ingrained state based on the way you were brought up. And actually, if you were lucky enough to have a good upbringing, uh, lucky you, but often we're presented with children that we just don't understand. And we need to be very, very skilled to bring out the best in them. So we teach positive parenting skills to parents. We do school workshops and we do teacher training. um, And we've got an online academy, which is global and just bringing in parents from all over the world. So, So it's just the most, I love my job, Stephen. I can't imagine doing anything else in this world and, and, and doing a job that kind of transforms lives, there is nothing better in the world. That's so cool. It, it, one of the things that uh, I ran into is uh, while I was looking at uh, parent practice is this thought about uh, um, developing a parents, developing a list of clear and consistent rules that can, that uh, um, can be a proactive parenting tool. Can you just, can you talk about that just a little bit? Uh, Yes, um, I am a big fan of rules. All children need boundaries and um, rules help children be successful. It's as simple as that. And what we find in family life is very often um, parents either don't discuss the rules together or there's a lack of united front. The rules becoming consistent and, and we don't end up teaching our children good habits and behaviors because we're not clear about what the underlying value is. So I'll give you an example. Most parents are really clear about the value of putting on a seatbelt in a car. Yeah? Yes, <laughs> hopefully. And putting on a seatbelt in the car, the underlying value is health and safety. And, and, and usually people are very consistent about that because they get the underlying value. Another example would be sleep. 
it could be that one parent gets the underlying value of a child getting to bed on time in order to ensure they wake up the next day feeling refreshed. And so they may be rigid and clear about lights out at eight o'clock, whereas another parent may have a completely different outlook on that. And that's an example of inconsistency that's not going to help your children be successful. So we say family values, you need to explore them. You need to develop rules and rules are your best friends. But the only problem is most families have rules that don't work because they um, are negative. And if we think about it, lots of families will have rules, no playing with a ball in the house, no swinging on the chair legs, yeah? Right. Um, no, no sweeties until the weekend. And whenever you have a negative rule, let me tell you, it doesn't work. So, so it, it just programs the child to think about what they cannot have and, and they do the opposite of what we want. So very simply, no balls in the house is, yeah, you can play with your ball in the garden. Um, no swinging on your chair legs becomes, yeah, four chair legs on the floor. Um, um, no screens before homework's done becomes, yeah, you can have your screen time when you've finished your homework. So, so reframing everything positively is absolutely critical. And we need to notice when our children are following the rules, as opposed to what we tend to do with that negativity bias is focus on when they don't follow the rule. <laughs> That's a very quick, simple answer. That's a great answer. I thank you so much for, for taking a kind of a little detour there. Thank you. The, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, I want to make sure before we, before we close is that if someone wanted to connect further with you, where would you send them? And uh, where do you suggest they find a copy of My Child's Different? Mm. So uh, we have a website, www.theparentpractice.com, or www.theparentpractice.com. And I would say have a look around there, sign up to our list, get a free download. We're on Facebook, The Parent Practice. We're on Twitter. And the book is available on Amazon.com. Awesome. And I will, in my show notes, I'll include uh, links to The Parent Practice and to all the places on social media that you mentioned, as well as uh, links to the book. So those of you who are... Uh, um, driving right now, you know, just wait, go to the website. You can pull off that information or, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to have you listen really, again. <laughs> that's really generous of you, Stephen. Thank you. You're welcome. The, uh, and so I got last two questions, Elaine, and, and they, and they work like this. Um, if you were given the chance to talk with 100 brand new teachers, and these are, these are young people who haven't started teaching yet, what advice would you give them? Oh gosh, that's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> I think based on the experience I've had with changing behavior, it's very simple. Be positive, get rid of that negativity bias, and be respectful to your pupils. When you're positive, when you're respectful, when you notice what things they get right, you will get better behavior. That's awesome. And that is awesome. Awesome lesson to. Uh, I could go on forever, but I know I know we've only got forty five minutes. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> good. Change the reticular activating system. That's what they need to do: is change that reticular activating system to notice effort and attitude and descriptively praise your children. That is the biggest top tip I've got for educators. That, that's excellent. I mean, that's just so powerful, and uh, um, I, I I cannot say enough about. Uh, how uh, um, useful that information is. So I encourage everyone to, you know, you want to listen to this part over and over again. <laughs> um, the, uh, the last question for you goes like this. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If given a chance to say thank you, who would it be and what would you say? Hmm. 
I think I'm going to answer that question differently, if you may permit me. Most definitely. I think I'm going to say it from Sam's point of view, because that's what the book is all about. And I would say um, the teachers in his life made a significant difference. And those teachers were ones who took time to understand Sam's temperament, to understand Sam's needs, and to really work with his strengths. The, the teachers who really brought out the best in him were those who took time, took time to get to know him and believed in him. And I think that was when the magic happened, when people started to believe in him, Sam then started to believe in himself. And I would say any educator or teacher out there, you have one of the most noble, most loyal jobs in the world because you can influence the mindset of your pupils using the power of your words. So there are many, many great teachers out there, and it's about getting to know that child. I love that. Thank you so very much. Um, Elaine, thank you so much for talking with me today about your book, My Child's Different, The Lessons Learned from One Family Struggle to Unlock Their Son's Potential. It is an incredible, impactful, powerful read that I think not only should parents read it, but I also think um, educators, teachers, principals, anybody who's working with any age child um, should take a, a look at this and, uh, um, and take it to heart. I, I can't thank you enough. I wish you the very best. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Hey, have you got some thoughts, questions, or ideas? I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me through my email at stephenmiletto at gmail.com. Stephen spelled with a V, and Mileto is M-I-L-E-T-T-O. And that's at gmail.com. Or if you're in the United States or Canada, you can call my Google Voice number at 478-353-5471. Love to hear from you. Thanks. Take care now. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio. Your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.